On That Dead Body Show, we talk about death and murder, and at times, we may use explicit language. Hey guys, welcome back to That Dead Body Show. I'm Brandy, and this is my co-host and husband, Douglas. Last week, we brought you a murder inspired by Scream, and this week, we have the murders that inspired Scream. Wait, what? Murders? So, multiple bodies. Many multiple. So, we have to change the name of the podcast? Mmm, nah. Okay, good, because that would be a lot of work. Just cue the creepy kids. In late summer 1990, Gainesville, Florida was paralyzed with fear as five students were found murdered over the course of four days. In what will cause extreme panic, a rush on deadbolts and guns caused people to sleep 12 to a room, taking shifts with others on watch, and people actually sleeping with steak knives under their pillows. Gainesville, Florida is about to have a flashback straight to Ted Bundy. On August 24, 1990, 17-year-old college freshmen Sonia Larson and Christina Powell are found brutally murdered in their apartment. Sonia was killed fast and in a blitz-like killing, stabbed 20 times, and not raped. Christina was tied up, raped, stabbed, and mutilated. She was found on her back, legs spread, nipples removed, and taken as a souvenir. Obvious time was spent with her. She's cleaned with dish soap. When the police arrive, they immediately think of Ted Bundy as does the coroner, who at this time is already executed. The next day, Saturday, August 25th, Krista Hoyt, having not shown up for her midnight shift as a records clerk at the local sheriff's office, a deputy was dispatched. They found her decapitated body, posed, having been cleaned like the previous victim, staring at, well, if she had a head, it would have been staring at her head that had been placed on a bookshelf. Her nibbles had been removed and placed on the pillow on the bed next to her. The decapitation, however, was not the cause of death. The cause of death had been one single stab wound to her back, piercing her heart. When the coroner arrived to inspect the body, they found that she had been eviscerated, her organs pouring from her body. At this point, the media is sure that they have a serial killer. They've dubbed him the Gainesville Ripper. And two days later, on Monday, August 27th, two roommates, Manny Taboda and Tracy Pauls, are found in their apartment, brutally murdered. Which all but confirmed their suspicions. Manny is found brutally stabbed, blitz-style, all over, again in an attempt to dispatch him quickly to move on to his targeted victim, Tracy. She is found in the hallway, stabbed only three times, raped and cleaned, a bottle of dish soap and a dish towel laying near the body. When police arrived, they are almost assured that the killer had been interrupted as the black bag that had been noted by the custodian who discovered the body was no longer there. Meanwhile, a tip line is set up and numerous phone calls come in pointing to Ed Humphrey, who had lived in the same apartment complex as Manny and Tracy. Callers said that he had a horrible temper, he had beaten up his own grandmother, and that he was talking about details from Manny and Tracy's murder scene that he just shouldn't have known about. And had talked about fleeing a body. Yeah. Like, had, yes, had talked about what it, was like, what it would be like to, to dissect a body. 
Police get a search warrant for his car and his grandmother's house, and they're looking for specific tools, and they take hair, saliva, and blood samples for DNA. In the meantime, he stands trial for attacking his grandmother, and the DNA comes back, and there is no match to the Gainesville murders. This was not released to the media so as to not cause further panic. Police, with no further leads and looking over all of the evidence, decide this must killer must have killed before. They decide to use VICAP, or the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, and put in all the details of the murders. It kicks out a match to a triple homicide unsolved in Shreveport, Louisiana, in November of 1989. Looking at other open warrants around the same time and area, they find a warrant for Danny Rowling for the attempted murder of his father, who was shot twice, losing an eye and an ear. He had been apprehended two counties over in Florida, after robbing a bank with another individual. During questioning, he, w- he won't admit to anything. He doesn't give them anything, any clues, other than to his campsite. He does give consent for a blood sample, hair sample, and saliva sample. Police, searching his campsite, found a screwdriver matching the description of the type of screwdriver they were looking for, a 5 inch serrated edge screwdriver, and a cassette tape that was almost sort of a a diary with thoughts to himself and and songs. DNA results will eventually conclude that Danny Rawling is indeed the Gainesville Ripper. Which is also confirmed by tool marks taken from the scene that match tool marks from the screwdriver I mentioned previously. Amazingly, there will be over 18,000 pieces of evidence taken in these five murders. Okay, so going back in retrospect, Danny didn't have it easy. He was born in 1954 to Father James and... He was a cop. Yeah. A not, shri- not a police officer, a, a cop. cop. Mom, Claudia, um... Tried to leave a bunch of times. Yes. And in like most abusive situations, she came back. Moving from Shreveport to Georgia and back to Shreveport. Allegedly, James was abusive both physically and verbally to all family members. Danny's first known beating was when he was an infant because James just didn't like the way he was crawling around. He would later beat him in his childhood for not mowing the lawn correctly. Not not mowing the lawn. Not mowing the lawn the way he wanted him to mow the lawn. At some point, um, Claudia, there's two different versions. There's one version that she tried to kill herself. And that he stood there and watched her. And then the other version is that he cut her and then took her to the hospital and claimed she did it to herself to make her look bad. It was thought by some of his teachers, I believe, that he had some type of learning disability, but, but his father wouldn't wouldn't subscribe to that because he was a cop and how would that appear? Or he was a police officer and how would that appear if he had a kid who was crazy or, you know, one of those other terms that people used to use to describe people who were uh, slower. Slower, yes. Danny would go on to be arrested numerous times, mostly for petty things such as robberies and spying on women. At 17, he would drop out. He goes into the Air Force, and it doesn't last long because he's actually busted for having marijuana and spends... But other than that, the entire time he was in the Air Force, he was a a soldier, a model soldier. 
He spent 30 days in the Air Force jail and was released on March 1st, 1973 and was given an honorable discharge under general conditions. Not too long after, he meets his wife at a Pentecostal church in Shreveport, Louisiana. Snake handling. You are not lying. Been there, lived there. I mean, they, do they handle gators there or do they just no, do snakes? No, it's snakes. Oh, that's so scary. When oh. I lived there in 1997 and went with my aunt to a full on Pentecostal, yes, ma'am. <laughs> in the spirit. I was scared. I, it, yeah, I went to a few. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, he meets her in 1975, or 1975, they marry in that, that September, and they have one child, a daughter, Kylie Danielle. So, leading up to the murders in 1990, Danny was a really fucking busy boy. He did everything from small robberies to big robberies to attempting to kill his wife and her boyfriend. I mean, this, to, I mean you have a list, right? Just I read do them have a all. list. Read them all. Okay, <laughs> so here we go. In 1976, in Mississippi, an armed robbery unspecified. In 1977, he killed a female in a car accident. Now, it wasn't specified if it, she was in the car with him or what. In 1977, he assaulted his wife, Omatha, and her boyfriend. Well, I mean, that that should have been okay. I right, mean, it right. was, what, Mississippi right. or Shreveport? No, they were still in Shreveport. Okay. He was, at this point, he, this motherfucker is going from Shreveport to Mississippi to Alabama to Florida and then back in Georgia. I mean, and just he's robbing, just... robbing, robbing shit. Yeah, <laughs> he, and he likes shit starts with W. You're fixing to find that out. Um... In 1977, there's a rape on an unnamed victim, which to me says they were probably underage, usually when they're unnamed. Um, in 1979... Of course, it, of course it is 1977, though. They might have not wanted to be named because of the shame. Oh, well, yeah, you're, it's, it's the you're right. You're right. Come on. In 1979, he in Montgomery, Alabama, Woo-hoo! he uh, robbed a Winn-Dixie. In May 29th in Columbus, Columbus, Georgia, he robbed a Winn-Dixie. He got $800 from the first Winn-Dixie right. and about and nine, 950 from the second. Right. He clearly has a thing for Winn-Dixies or shit that starts with W. Um, in 1980. Another rape. Yeah. Unspecified, unnamed. It, attempted rape. This was an attempted. And now, the You know one. what? That might be the lady who says, he told me he was going to rape me and leave me for dead. in the Because it never, dead. it shows her clip in the do- documentary, but it never talks anymore about her. It just shows that clip at the very beginning. Right. So, the next crime. The next crime, um, I have a part in. Uh, July of 1985. In not, an, not an accomplice. Right, not an accomplice. Um, I was like six or so. Seven. 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 Um, I can't mask people. Okay, so in July of 1985 in Clinton, Mississippi, me and my grandmother were in the Kroger. She was picking up her medicine, and we were headed to the back for the pharmacy and we were all told to hide and get down because there was a guy there robbing the place. And guess who it was? It was our boy Danny. We never saw him. Wait, hold on. That was Mops. God rest her soul. Yes, that was Mops. Um, later on, you know, I was so young at this point, I didn't realize who it was. It wouldn't be until after he was actually captured for these murders that my grandmother looked at my grandfather, Pops, and said, Pee-wee, that was the guy who robbed us that day. We could have died. Literally in those words. And, th- and that was the only Kroger he robbed. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we never got to see him. Like I said, we were in the back. We were, you know, we were told to hide and get down. And he never came to the back. He did what he needed to do and he left. So, on May 18th, 1990, he finally gets sick of his dad's shit. After yet another argument, he storms out 
of the house. And I guess he's going to go take cover, you know, like, to get the fuck away from James. He goes to the family shed, and he's got a gun out there. But James doesn't know it. So, James, being the tyrant that he is, he's not going to let Danny walk away. And he follows him out there, screaming and hollering at him. And he, But he doesn't see him. So, he goes back in the house, and Danny walks back up to the house, kicks the door in, makes sure his dad's in the kitchen, and shoots him once in the face and once in the stomach. So, James lives. He loses an eye and an ear. And from then on, he has to walk with a cane. And here, our warrant is issued that will later get him the attention he so justly deserves in Florida. But he's gone from Shreveport. So, he leaves Shreveport on June 2nd of 1990. There's a home invasion he's charged with on June 2nd of 1990. He robs a Westwood United Superstore for about $1,600. And on June 30th, two weeks later, he robs the same fucking Westwood United Superstore for $2,000. So, apparently in July, he laid really low. I don't know if it was because he had enough money that he didn't have to do anything. But in August of 1990, he robs a young man named Christopher of his money in his car. He doesn't kill him. And my guess is that he got what he wanted from him so he didn't have to, you know, he, he doesn't like to interact with the males in situations. I mean, unless he has to. I mean, all he could get off this guy was the money. And he had the money. So, yeah. I mean, there's no need to kill the guy. I mean, he's not going to get anything further. Like, he's not going to kill the guy to rape the girl like he does in the Tabota in case. Right. So, fast forwarding just a little bit. Um, within a few days of the, the robbery of this, of this kid, he's going to kill Sonia and Christina, Krista, Manny, and Tracy. And on the same day that Manny and Tracy are found, he robs a bank with another homeless guy, a drifter. They are seen walking across the interstate as police are leaving. Carrying duffel bags. Carrying duffel bags. And in what just absolutely fucking stuns me, when the police stop and ask these two individuals, who had to have looked suspicious just for multiple reasons, what's going on, Danny runs... And the black guy stops and says, um, so we just robbed a bank. And that's and Mike. And they were like, you're going to jail. And he's like, I know. You know. He goes, and that's my friend Mike Kennedy. We're camping right here. But at this time, the campsite is not searched. Because they think they've just got a bank robber. And they, they knew at this time that they were looking for a screwdriver. And, right. And they're, they, when they did search the campsite, they right. found a lot of those right. 18,000. But they didn't. I just... I, I don't know why they didn't search the campsite that day. And on the two documentaries that I mean, we watched the other day, they actually say... Especially since there was actually later money discovered there right. with di- that was dice-stained unless they had robbed right. another bank. Well, he might have. I mean, there might have been money I from mean, the other yeah, things. Yeah. But it just... It just well, I mean, dice-stained packs are usually a bank thing, really, right? Right. I mean, the, right. the grocery store things usually those three $1 right. yeah, bills no, over there right. that if you pull it out, it trips the alarm. You're right. Um... <laughs> Either way, it's mind-boggling that they did not search. Because the guy says, and he says, this is my friend Mike Kennedy. So, they do later arrest Mike Kennedy, or who they think is Mike Kennedy. And the fingerprints prove to be Danny Rawling. Which leads to his arrest for the warrant for shooting his father. At this point, the campsite is searched. It's my opinion that the campsite should have been searched earlier. They find a pair of jeans with Tabota's blood on them. Yes. 
They'd find underwear with a pubic hair from... Krista Hoyt. Krista Hoyt in them. They find... The screwdriver, of course. Right. Uh, the, blood, the, blood, the dye stain money. They find... They find... They find a lot of shit. 18,000 items of, of evidence, and, and a lot of them came from, from his campsite. campsite. Yeah, he had people's pubic hair and blood just... Like, he was not trying to hide it at all. Um, on the cassette tape which was previously referenced to be in some sort of diary. Um, he, I can only assume he's talking to his mom. I don't feel like he was talking to his dad. The three people he loves the most? Yeah, but I can't. Hmm. Not Let's sure. play it. Not sending this to the three people I love the most. But I'll always love you. I love my mother. I love my father. And I love my brother. Now I got the sky for for a blanket, the earth for a bed, and some rumpled up clothes for a pillow. But it's okay. It's just the way it is. You take the good with the bad. Pretty good at it. Well, I'm gonna sign off for a little bit. I got something I gotta do. I mean, I'm actually surprised that he did name his dad in that, to be very honest with you, and to me that makes it all the more sad. I love you, so I shot you. It's like some Johnny Cash shit right there, right? Yeah, but I mean think about it though, you know, a lot of times the people you love the most are the ones that push you to do something like that. that that's true, that's true. I mean, there is a show called Snap for a fucking reason. We are in no way affiliated with the show Snap. So, at this point, um, they're still testing all the 18,000 things that they took from all the scenes in the campsite. And we're talking about 1990, so DNA didn't just come rushing back like in CSI or, you know, any of your TV shows. It took a minute. But when it does, it comes back to match... All three Florida scenes and all five murders. So he's charged with all five murders and uh, three counts of sexual battery and armed burglary. So I guess that comes in because he had the knife and stuff when he broke in. At this point, he's already been charged with the robbery. The bank robbery. The bank robbery, right. The same day that, you know, when they got busted and he ran away. So he's already in jail for that. He's being charged for that. Now he's charged with the five murders in Gainesville. And as if he couldn't get any more weird and odd, he decides a month before his trial for the murders that he's going to talk to police, but only through his cellmate. 
who's a very actual famous prisoner in in Florida. He's the only person to ever escape off of death row. Bobby Lewis. Bobby Lewis. Right. So he's thinking, you know, this will bring bring some bring some notoriety to him because he does admit that he wants to be famous like Ted Bundy was. Remember, we're at five murders. But he was in jail for eight. Eight years across three states. Right. He admitted to all five Gainesville murders, but absolutely refused to discuss the Grissom murders in Shreveport. All of this being done through Bobby Lewis, of course, still. Right. In this interrogation, he, his only reasoning for any of the killings was that he wanted to be famous like Ted Bundy and that he was working his way to eight. For One for every year that he had spent in jail. in jail across the three states. Still refusing to admit the Grissom murders. Thinking, oh wow, I got my eight. You would, you would think he would. I don't understand. I don't. I've never understood that. So, from there on, the prosecutors are clearly planning that you know he's going to go for the insanity defense. And in open court, he not only confesses to the five murders and pleads guilty, but proceeds to sing. Let's uh, let's play that for you. Could I address the court? I recall the day I first saw you. I reached out to say I love you. But it was hard to say I couldn't touch you. And all you want to be deep or shallow. Okay, excuse me, Mr. Rollins. Down Mr. the path you choose Mr. to follow. Mr. Rollins. Tell me, baby, what were my... On the day his trial was to begin, he, he addressed the court and said that uh, he had been running for a long time and he was tired of running. And uh, On April 20th, 1994, Danny Rawling was sentenced to death on each count of murder. While he was in jail, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and paraphilia which, if you don't know, is a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires, typically involving extreme or dangerous activities, in which I would say cutting people's heads off is extreme. Right. Shortly before his death, he gave his spiritual advisor and Florida police a handwritten confession and apology to the grisly triple murders he committed 17 years before in his hometown of Shreveport. Surprise. <laughs> Big Surprise. So, as previously talked about, um, the three murders in Shreveport, we didn't go into great detail earlier, but they're the ones who connected him through Vicap. He quickly killed William and his grandson, Sean, which was the actual victim, Julie's nephew. Um, he posed, he raped her, he killed her, he mutilated her breast, and he cleaned her. Just like he would later on. And then posed her body. Yeah, and then posed her body. Just like he would later on with the other girls. So, on October 25th, 2006, at the age of 52, Danny Harold Rowling became the 63rd inmate to be put to death since Florida resumed executions in 1979. He decided his last meal was to be a lobster tail, butterfly, butterfly shrimp, yeah. baked potato, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. Asked if he had any final words, Rawlings sang a self-written hymn which repeated the line, None greater than thee, O Lord, until he was pronounced dead at 613, while an anti-death penalty protest was going on outside. 
We told you guys earlier that these set of murders inspired Scream. Well, here's the, here's the gist of it. On March 9th, 1994, an episode of the news magazine Turning Point aired an episode on Danny Rawling, the serial killer in Gainesville, Florida, and a young Kevin Williamson, uh, house-sitting in Westwood, a big lonely house, Westwood, a small community, I believe just outside Hollywood, and he was sure that there was someone outside. He was so scared. He called his friend. His friend started telling him about these movie tropes, you know, oh, well, don't go outside. And and he had terrible nightmares that night. Woke up the next morning and wrote Scream. All right, guys. So this is another episode in the body bag. As of today, we can officially tell you that we are on all platforms. So you can subscribe to Apple no. Podcasts. Apple Pod- Podcasts. I'm sorry. It's not Apple, iTunes anymore. Right. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Lots of them. Everything <laughs> is there. You can find us across all social media at That Dead Body Show. All right, guys. So see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.